Hebrews 10, verse 32. Now remember, we're finishing out this section here of verse 26 through, uh, I think that was 38. I forgot what I... 39, why put 30? Well, in this section of Scripture, the writer is warning these Jews that if they abandon the gathering together on Sunday morning for worship, and they don't take the warning and they don't admonish one another about the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus had talked about, uh, then here is the peril that they're in. Here's the danger of forsaking the assembly of the saints and neglecting the warning that Jesus gave them in Mark, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Uh, of that destruction of Jerusalem that was on its way because there was going to be a point in time when God used Titus, a Roman general uh, to utterly destroy the temple, the city of Jerusalem and the temple and so God not only executed his wrath upon them disbelieving Jews after they've been warned and warned and warned and warned and still didn't listen. It's interesting to me that uh, those Jews, uh, they could not deny the power of the Lord yet to crucify Him. They were blinded by their hatred. It's kind of like the Democrats, they, we wonder sometimes how how come they cannot see things the way we see them. Well, when you become blinded by a deception, it's hard to see through that deception. That's the way the Democrats are. That's the way the Jews were. You remember they put down uh, palm leaves and welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem? Why did they do that? They want to save from Rome now. Yeah. And they cried, Hosanna, which means save now, save now, save now. And that's what they were hollering and screaming as a mob of people. No doubt there was thousands of them. Uh, but they didn't want salvation from sin. They wanted salvation from Rome. They wanted a physical deliverance. A lot of people in the church don't want spiritual uh, uh, uh medication if, if you will they want physical medication they want to be healed of their diseases yet Jesus when he come to the Jews you know he told them uh, I didn't come to those who don't need a physician I came to those who recognize a need for a physician and he's a physician of the soul not of the body not of the body he didn't promise us that uh, uh, we need a big prayer list and pray for one another and and all of that nonsense. Uh, we can definitely pray for one another, but 
<laughs> we've carried that away to where we're like the Jews. We don't see the salvation of the Lord as being of the soul. We see it, we want it of the body. And that's what the Jews wanted. They wanted deliverance from Rome. So they saw his power. They acknowledged his power when they cried out, Hosanna to him, save now. Uh, because they saw him, that he, in his divinity, his divine nature, he had power over everything, over demons, over disease, uh, over uh, maladies of all kinds, over quality and quantity. Uh, as he changed the water into wine, uh, and uh, uh, and fed all them multitude of people, thirty-eight thousand of them with five loaves and two fishes. <laughs> so they acknowledged his deity, but they rejected him because he didn't have the program that they wanted. They wanted deliverance from Rome. Even the apostles, right up until the last, after Jesus had already been crucified. You remember he told him while he was alive, he said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. <clears throat> well, what were some of those things? One of them was about the kingdom. And so when he finished his redemptive work, uh, Luke says in chapter 1 of Acts <clears throat> that for 40 days he was there speaking to them in things pertaining to the kingdom. They still didn't understand. What they asked Jesus just before he ascended into heaven? Well, Lord, uh, wilt thou again restore the kingdom of it, uh, to Israel? In other words, will you restore it again to its, uh, uh, and deliver it from Rome bondage? And he said, it's not for you to know the times, the seasons, the father's put in his hand, but uh, and, but uh, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So he left it for the Spirit to inform those men uh, about the nature of the kingdom, and it certainly did. But they had this nationalistic concept also right at the very end. They still was anxious for him to restore Israel to its right as a nation. Well, it had that right as long as God had a purpose for it, but that purpose ended when Christ came. Because as John says in his gospel in John 1, 17, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So these Jews were without excuse. They were totally without excuse. And their own testimony, save now, Hosanna, save now. And laying down palm leaves, uh, that was an act that only uh, kings, victorious kings received. And he rode in on the colt of an ass, which was a symbol of surrender. They didn't see it. But they recognized his deity, yet they crucified him. Uh, there was in John the third chapter there's Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews he's not just an ordinary Jew he's a ruler he's a man who teaches law the law of the Old Testament 
And he came to Jesus and he said, We know, Rabbi, Master, he called him a master. He said, We know that you're a man come from God. Why? Because no man can do what you do except God be with him. And so the Jews were totally without excuse. But like the Democrats, they're totally without excuse. I mean, can't they see the evidence of what's happening because of their stupidity? No, they don't seem to be able to see. You and me can see it pretty clear. It's all around us. But they will not acknowledge it, and that's what the Jews did. That's why they crucified the very one that they testified had these divine powers. Well, as you know in the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, that was when the first gospel sermon was preached. And 3,000 Jews acknowledged they'd murdered their own Messiah. And they obeyed the gospel, being baptized into Christ. And in the next day, on Solomon's porch, there was 5,000 Jews obeyed the gospel at the preaching of Christ. And then it just says from there on, Luke records how that it had such success that it just multiplied the number of uh, those who were delivered from sin by their obedience. They were multiplied throughout Jerusalem. And no telling how many was saved. And then it's like the Lord told the apostles, you'll be witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. And so it finally left Jerusalem and spread throughout the world. Uh, but these Jews now have lost their heritage. I mean, if you obey the gospel, being a Jew, your father has disowned you. You have no possession in the family. You're not recognized anymore by the family. I knew a, a Jew once who obeyed the gospel, and that's what happened to him. And that's in our time. And so these Jews have forfeited everything for the cause of Christ. They forfeited their possessions and everything we're going to see. And... Uh, Yet, later on, they began to think, maybe, about what they had forfeited, and they wanted back. And so, there was that temptation to go back to Judaism and make Dad happy and get their inheritance back. And so, the Hebrew writer is warning them, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, verse 25, as the manner of some is, but exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day of destruction of Jerusalem coming, A.D. 70. So here he's continuing to show them the peril if they go back to Judaism, because there's nothing there. It was merely a shadow of better things to come. There's nothing there. There's no The sacrifices that they made don't mean anything anymore. All they done was pointed to Christ, and he's already made the sacrifice. And so, uh, beginning in verse 32, uh, and again, maybe you, 
I've, I've not told you, but I'm reading out of the NIV, the New International Version. And you probably got, maybe some of you got the King James. And so uh, it says the same thing, but in, in different words. Verse 32, remember those early days. Now here he's calling them to look back. Remember those early days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Memory is an excellent tool for the writer to use with his readers. Uh, he's going back to the early days of their conversion. Maybe back to the day of Pentecost when the church was fresh and had just begun. When the church began, they were excited about their conversion. And that's what Acts 2, we'll see in a minute, testified to. They were excited about their conversion. They, uh, When they had a very intimate union with God on that occasion, and intensive fellowship with the brethren. Remember, that was the day that God poured out His Spirit beginning uh, upon all flesh there at Jerusalem. They witnessed that. They saw that. And they heard the preaching of these men who were authorized to do that, to preach that message. And so in Acts 2, verse 42 through 47, we see the results. That explains the early characteristics of the church. Uh, everyone was selling his goods and distributing it according to common needs. Where there was no one that counted anything that he had, as belonging to himself. <clears throat> you know anybody today that is that selflessness? No. No. We're not that way, are we? They were. One of the reasons was that they thought, the Thessalonians anyway, <coughs> they thought the end was coming right away. And so they gladly quit their jobs and everything. And Paul, if you read Thessalonians, Paul had to tell them, you need to go back to work. <laughs> because <laughs> no man knows when the Lord's coming. That's a day on his calendar, and that's private. And so there was a spontaneous, generous attitude of devotion to the needs one of another as they expressed their common praise unto God. They continued, it says in Acts 2, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. That's Acts 2 and verse 46. That was the nature of their early uh, uh, obedience, belief in obedience. Such was the beautiful uh, experiences in those early days. The writer's asking them then, can you go back and remember how it used to be in the beginning? Remember how it was in the beginning after you had received the light about Christ? You were instructed in the message that he came to give. Remember how you stood your ground when your former Jewish friends and family ridiculed you for your faith in Christ? Now, we're studying 1 Corinthians on Sunday, on um, Wednesday night. 
And we've already seen how that in chapter 1, the world looks on us as fools. We are fools for Christ's sake. That's the way they see us. Because God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the things that are wise and the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. So God chose just exactly the opposite of what Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Cambridge in this world would have chosen and do choose. So they look upon us as fools. And so the writer here is telling them, remember uh, when you stood your ground, even though you was mocked and, and everything, they persecuted you, but you stood with Jesus even in the face of suffering for the cause of Christ. And uh, that's what he said in verse 32. You stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Uh, you did not let their uh, opposition turn you away from Jesus. You did not give up. But now there's some things they're going to settle down and think about, and maybe some of them want to go back and get their family heritage again. Verse 33. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. treated. Uh, the Jewish opposition to the early church is a matter of, a rec of record. It was severe and it was cruel. Those early Christians were uh, unmoved and undaunted by the persecutions, whether, uh, whether endured personally or by standing in solidarity with fellow Christians who were hurting, they maintained their faith. <coughs> the writer still wants them to remember these things. You were opposed and insulted. They called you names that were not at all complimentary. Evidently, they hardly they harshly turned their fierce against Jesus, the one in whom the Christian fervently believed. That's why Jesus warned the apostles said, in the Gospels. He said, the world is going to hate you. Now, if you follow the apostles, the world's going to hate you. Jesus said, they hate you because they hated me. And they hated me because they hated my Father that sent me. That's just a fact we have to live with. We're living in a world that does not like the Lord. They don't like the Creator. They don't like the salvation He offers. Oh, they don't want to go to that place called hell, but they want to write their own Magna Carta as though they had some standing with God where they could decide for Him. Maybe they, uh, maybe they did not call you names, but they called your brethren names, and they hurt them. And maybe you were not thrown in prison, but many of you brethren were. Uh, your brethren were. But you stood as one with them. So he's calling on them to remember. Uh, verse 34. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the, the confiscation of your property because you knew that yourselves 
have better possessions. We do, don't we? We got better possessions than what we got down here. These are just temporary. And uh, so if the government comes to take your property, are you going to take up weapons and risk your family's life and your life over the stupidity of these things down here? It's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? So he says, I want you to remember how you uh, ministered to your Christian brethren when they were cast into prison. You even joyfully uh, accepted the loss of your family inheritance. Your possessions were stolen from you and your rights were denied. But that did not dissuade you in your faith and devotion to Christ. In those days when a Jew left the family's time-honored religion, he was often disinherited by the unconverted Hebrew father, and the Christian was stripped of his inheritance. Maybe that is a part of why some of them were thinking of returning to Judaism. At least they would get their inheritance back. Jews converted to Christianity were considered as a traitor to the Hebrew cause and therefore treated as if he had died. And that's what this one boy told me. He had a family, but his father told him, you're no longer, you, we don't know you anymore. You're not my son anymore. We will never see one another again because you've abandoned the Jewish faith. And that was about oh, 50 years ago in my lifetime. And so he would be uh, uh, disinherited. The reason they were able to take the loss of inheritance joyfully, it says, was because they knew that Christ brought them better possessions of an eternal nature. And that's what we have to look at. Your farm one day won't be yours anymore. Somebody else will walk that farm. They'll walk that house. They'll use your furniture. Uh, they'll take over possession and maybe squander it, sell it, destroy it, whatever. It's temporary. But here's something that's eternal. If a man knew the real value of those better possessions that's mentioned here, he would be willing to give up anything on earth in order to get the heavenly possession. When Jesus invited people to give up everything they had, it looked like a great sacrifice, but it is not. If they give up everything they have in order to get everything that he has, even if they were fabulously rich, it would still be an advantageous trade. Uh, what they give up of their riches would be as nothing in comparison to what we get in return. Whatever price must be paid to live faithfully to the cause of Christ is a price well worth paying. Well, you and I need to be reminded of, the na of that nature of things, don't we? Verse 35, <clears throat> so in view of this, do not throw away 
your confidence, or better translation, be boldness. It will be richly rewarded. You know, people throw away worthless things, but Christianity is not worthless. It alone possesses all worth. Uh, just go read the parables of the pearl of great price and the hidden treasures as mentioned in Matthew 13, verse 44 through 45. Now the word confidence that's used in this translation is really the boldness already discussed. It is boldness to enter the throne room in the exercise of our faith. That's Hebrews 10, 19. There's boldness to approach the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy. Hebrews 4, 16. Keep your confidence and faith in Christ, for it will be richly rewarded, it says. The writer says here in verse 35. Not only in this life, but also in that which is to come. Incidentally, with all the suffering in Christ, Let's, let's, just, uh, let's just look at what you may have suffered or might suffer in Christ. Is it worth it in this world? There's people out here this morning chewing their fingernails off, fighting with one another, husband and wife, children. They're, they're frustrated. They're angry. Things ain't going the way they want them to go. They're not having a good day haven't had a good week. They don't have the boldness of being able to enter into the presence of God knowing that they're one with God. They don't have that boldness. They don't have that confidence. I've wondered many times about people of the world. What do they trust in? What in the world gives them the confidence? That, I mean, you got to have something to live for and toward something. Well, all that all's out there is death in the physical world. That's all that's out there. And it ain't very far off from, for a lot of us. What in the world drives them? Why do they get up in the morning and, and continue their day and their exercise or whatever they do? Riding horses or whatever their hobby is. My goodness, can't they see daylight? And so the writer uh, admonishes them to keep their confidence in Christ, for he says it will be richly rewarded. That's verse 35 again. That's what we're studying, verse 35. It will be richly rewarded, not only in this life, but also that which is to come. Evidently, some of those early converts had a throwaway attitude about earthly properties. All of them voluntarily sold their possessions and made distribution according to what was needed, to the need then. But as time passed, after a number of years, those possessions began to take on a little more value to them. Those properties became a little more exciting and tempting. And so the writer here warns them not to throw away those possessions uh, uh, draw at, uh, that drew them away from the greater reward. They would give up Christ and their Hebrew father would welcome them back into the family and reinstate them back into their inheritance. 
But would it be a worse thing to be disinherited by God than by one's Hebrew father? Well, certainly. The choice was theirs, disinherited by the heavenly father or by the earthly father. And that's your mind and your choice today. I like old Joshua 24:15. Joshua said, Choose you this day whom you'll serve. He was a leader. He was a deliverer. And he looked into the face of people that we look into and we live with. And he recognized it's a personal choice. He recognized there's a lot of people just going to make the wrong choice, but he said that's your choice to make. Choose you this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods of the Amorites or Jehovah. But as for me and my house, he didn't make any, he didn't uh, waste any words. He said, for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. That's got to be your determination. That's, gotta, that's what he's warning these Jews about. Your inheritance with God is going to be far greater than a little inheritance down here for a few more years. So, verse 36. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Perseverance is needed when trials and temptations lay heavy on a man's life. Patience is a better translation here of the Greek in this verse. Be patient and you will receive what he has promised. Uh, present privileges in Christ and eternal inheritance with Christ when he returns. Inheritance from God is still an open option for the readers. But if they depart, like uh, the writers afraid they're going to, they may have no more todays in which to return. And so he warns them by the Spirit, today is the day of salvation. Uh, to be remembered in this context is the fact that the Romans were coming. They were so completely destroyed and raised all Hebrew property uh, that that is in their uh, path. Stay faithful to Christ. That's what he's warning them. He's saying, listen, you need to, uh, in the finality, you, remember, you need to remember how the Lord spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem. It's right on top of you. And when you see it, you need to run. He didn't say, go down and buy an AR-15 or an AK-47 and fight them bastards. He didn't say that. He said, run for your life. Run up into the hills. Because there's the protection, the only protection you're going to get. If you want to be stubborn and obstinate, remain in Jerusalem, and on Masada, you're going to die. That's what happened to them. So when you, uh, this is kind of off the, off the, uh, what we're studying here, but let me make mention of it. If you follow the Lord, then you find no place where he fought with the government. In fact, he said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. He also taught through the apostles in Romans 
13, verse 1 through 7, obey the higher powers, for there is no power but God. We've never been called to go to war. Never have. Do you suppose maybe there's some provisions in life that God has made for you and I? Yeah, there always has been. We're a protected people. Oh, there might be some suffering that he allows us to go through. They did in the first century. But they also had the uh, wisdom given to them to run for their life when they seen Jerusalem compassed about with armies. When they saw the destruction of Jerusalem beginning to mount. So, uh, the writer is warning them that they will completely destroy and raise the Hebrew property that is in their path. Stay faithful to Christ, for the days are now few uh, before the Romans come, and then it will be evident how foolish it would be for a Christian to abandon Christ for some earthly property that will soon be destroyed by the Romans. Is your property worth dying for? And who do you follow? Jesus never advocated rebellion against the government. He advocated be at peace with all men. Now, we may not like that, and I don't know that I like it. I'm trying to learn to live with it because it's pretty hard for somebody to come in the government and take your property and everything. In some countries, I guess they have, but they're still going to need a welder, and they're going to have to feed me. And so why do I care about the system? You know, it's like my dad said, uh, if the Russians was to come to his door, he'd run out and salute him and ask him if they need a good welder. <laughs> what else are you going to do? I got an AK-47, don't mess with me. Why, they'd blow you. There'd be a hole in the ground where you your house used to be. And you'd be part of that splatter all over something else. The neighbors. Anyway, that's not the lesson this morning, is it? But it was an occasion to bring it in anyway. <clears throat> Verse 37. He says, For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. So God has a day of judgment on his calendar. You and I are not privy to his calendar. We don't know when he's coming. But he is coming. So as mentioned in uh, the study on verse 25 of this chapter, this citation is taken from Habakkuk 2, verse 3 and 4. As your, as your cross-reference will tell you. And it contains a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. See, they were not only warned about the, by, the, by the Lord, but they was also warned by Habakkuk. They was warned by God through prophecy. And they still didn't listen. That's why Jesus looked at them pathetic people as we look at the same group of people today that are pathetic, having eyes to see, they refuse to see what's seeable. 
Having ears to hear, they refuse to hear what is hearable and understandable. They just won't tolerate it. That's the problem with the Democrats. They can't see their nose to their, in front of their face. I mean, the problems they've caused around the globe, uh, globally, worldwide. <laughs> they have desecrated America. Do they see it? Oh, no, they think it's, we're being kind to everybody. All right. <laughs> you don't stand as a world power that way. God gave the government's power, didn't he? Romans 13. Obey the higher powers, for there is no power but God, and the powers that be are ordained by him. <coughs> Do we have a right to fight the government? Think about that. Dwell on that a little bit. Because there's organizations down here today that uh, bless their hearts. They're, they're wanting to protect their rights and their goods, and they're ready to fight. They've got weaponry stored up and they're ready to go. But who do you follow, them or Jesus? If you follow him, you obey the higher powers. He said they're not a threat to good deeds. I've never seen anybody locked up for feeding the poor or preaching the gospel of peace to someone. We have that privilege and God sees that we have that privilege. We didn't invent that. We didn't make that inroad in government. God did. Our freedom is in God and even our early government back in Washington, George Washington today recognized that. Our freedoms, our liberties were given to us by God, not by some smart man that come out of Harvard and Yale and all of that nonsense. You need to consider that. He rules these governments. He's not going to let anything happen to the church. It's not beneficial to it. But there might arise a time when you and I get so greedy in this world, we need to lose some of our property. And he might allow it. But there's only two ways that anything happens. I don't care if you're talking about a blade of grass turning green in the summer or turning brown in the winter. There's nothing happens except God commanded it or he allowed it. One of the two. He is the commander in chief. This is his world, not man's. He set up government. He set up the home. He set up the church. And who do we think we are? Deliverers of a great nation called America? I'll serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve, but I'll serve the Lord. And so the Hebrew in the Habakkuk text says this. <clears throat> if you turn over and read Habakkuk 2, verse 3 and 4, we're not going to turn over there this morning. But here's what it says. In a little while, that's the statement made. And it's suggesting that the readers are standing under the very shadow of that event the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So even Habakkuk spoke of it. He said, He who is coming, and that uh, could be Christ, as he comes in judgment against the rebellious nation of Israel at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, or he who is coming could 
be the Romans. In either case, the event is soon coming, and it will not delay. Verse uh, 38. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 declares an eternal principle by which God deals with man. The principle of obedient faith. Others may well face the raging fires of divine judgment on a rebellious nation, but the Christian will live spiritually in union with God. He will have spiritual life. He'll be the one who flees to the mountains as the Lord told him, run for the mountains to escape the wrath because God is coming in the form of Titus, a Roman general. That just didn't happen against God. Again, nothing happens. If God didn't command it or allow it, he rules these governments. He brought his wrath down on them Jews. He put up with them for centuries. They never was a partaker of the covenant. God was a covenant keeper, but they weren't. Stephen said in Acts 7, 51, you do always resist the Spirit of God as your fathers did, so do ye. All right, so the passage in Habakkuk does not speak of simply physical life. Though evidently those who were faithful to Christ and believed his warnings given in Matthew 24 would flee Jerusalem and go to the mountains for safety. And thus he would preserve his physical life. But the text more properly deals with the spiritual life preserved for uh, the man of faith. Anyone who rejects the faith and returns to Judaism in spite of all the warnings, to the contrary, shall likely lose his physical life in the siege laid against Jerusalem. But worse, since God, it says, will not be pleased with him, in that verse, verse 38, he shall uh, consequently lose his soul. Jesus once asked the question, what would you give in exchange for your soul? If you own the whole world, if you own all the money, all the furniture, all the houses, all the real estate, if you own everything, including that little D4 cat, <laughs> what would you give in exchange for your soul? <laughs> We're all serious here this morning. Verse 39. He says, but we are those who shrink back, uh, those who, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but rather of those who believe and are saved. The shrinking back that he mentions there would be a return to the now defunct Hebrew religion. Those who do so are destroyed, he says, both physically and spiritually, and ultimately eternally. Yet the writer wishes to encourage his readers. He expressed his confidence that they have not yet gone so far 
as to be irreconcilable to faith in Christ. Perhaps it is more a wish than he expresses that a clear affirmation that their condition is not hopeless. He wants them to understand that. One final word of encouragement is given. He says, we are of those who believe and are saved. The salvation relates to the soul, and the object of faith is Christ. For only in him is there salvation. And that's his message to those Jews. Next week, we'll go into uh, the 11th chapter, verse 1 through 40. You ever wondered why the writer presents all these uh, heroes of faith, as we call them? He's talking to the Hebrews, and he's talked about them maintaining their faith in Christ. Now he's going to illustrate it by examples of all those who were heroes. And after he mentions a number of them, he finishes out that chapter with the statement, What shall I say more? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and all those faithfuls of years gone by. But he's warning these Jews, he's continuing to warn them by showing them uh, the works of faith on those who believe God. He starts with uh, uh, Adam's son Cain, or Abel, Abel. And he starts there, and he goes all the way through their history. He goes through Noah, Moses, the great lawgiver. And he will illustrate uh, faith's obedience and faith's patience, faith's endurance. And he's writing again to these people who are have the temptation to draw back from Christ and go back to Judaism and to the inheritance of a physical life with their father's possessions. Thank you.